You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, this is Kate Wagner for the Cycling Podcast. This is an audio diary entry. I'm currently sitting in the back garden of our lovely bed and breakfast here uh, right before stage three. I'm here to report on the hotel situation. So I got here on the 22nd and my first hotel was like an Airbnb. It was one of those situations where there was, <laughs> I think, some like kind of skeezy landlord or something put together like four Airbnbs in a house in a sort of uh, de facto hotel. And everything sort of looked nice, I think, at the beginning. Um, and then, you know, the day after, first of all, the power went out and the locks are electronic, so I couldn't get into my room. So I had to just kind of, I, I took everything that I had down to the press center and <laughs> in Brest and came back. And then the day after, well, they, they turned the power back on, but the, the day after I woke up with bug bites, I was like, oh no. You know what that means. So I basically threw out everything I was wearing. Um, I I am so paranoid about this at this point in my life with, with bed bugs that I never leave my bag open ever when I travel. Like I take off what I wear and I put it in the bag and yeah, no, no chances. Take no chances. Take no prisoners. Because I got bed bugs once in Amsterdam and it was like truly a horrible experience. Anyways, hotel day two. So my Airbnb that I had booked in center of breast was turned out to be a scam. Uh, and so I ended up having to book at the last second a Campanile on booking.com. And a Campanile is, <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, um, if you're American, it's kind of like the Motel 6 of Europe. Uh, a lot of the rooms are old. I'm pretty sure this building was from probably like the 19... 19- 50s, maybe early 1960s, which, you know, all the entrances are on the exterior. There's uh, the quarters on the outside. And yeah, it was like kind of a small, dingy room. Uh, Bed was uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, that's part of the tour. Uh, Definitely felt like I was, I guess, as you could say, schlepping it. Um, Yeah, so that was that was day two. Day three, hotel report. uh, or I guess we shouldn't say days, but like this is okay. Stage one now. Um, now we're we were at the presser, so now we're at. This was just during press week, so now we're start of stage one. We stayed with uh, stayed with Richard and Francois in lovely uh, French chateau farmhouse with some kind of strange art on the walls. Actually, there's in the main dining room there was. Um, this uh, painting of a guy standing over a toilet, which I found rather disturbing. Uh, he kind of was painted in these vampiric colors. But the food was wonderful, and the you know the madame was strict. Uh, she, you reached over to grab bread that wasn't from your basket, she would uh, slap your hand away. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 that's your basket. Yeah, it's funny. Strict French manners. Very interesting architecture. Very, uh, I guess we'd say stereotomic architecture. Very stone with a wonderful lovely garden and great high ceilings and beams and 
I stayed in the upper room and it was, I love rooms that make me feel tall because I'm 5'3", uh, 5'3", sorry, I don't know how what, what that is in, in um, meters, but yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, beautiful room, beautiful, there was goats outside that would, and sheep that would be buying, and the sheep kind of reminded me of my miniature poodle, Winston, who needs a haircut pretty desperately, which I should probably book. It's nice to have, like, a petit déjeuner, tiny French breakfast with bread and jams, apricot jam, strawberry jam, you know, a yogurt. The bread is fantastic, and the Breton butter is honestly to die for. You know, being from the southern United States, we really do love our butter there, so, you know, I appreciate a good butter. That's very important. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, this is like my first tour, and everyone is kind of in awe of it. You know, they're like, oh, it's your first time. Like, they're so excited. They're so excited for me. But no one is as excited as I am, obviously. Uh, and it's it's been pretty great so far. It's amazing to me, actually. One of the things that really struck me, and when we went to the stage, we were at the foot of the, not the Meurbe de Breton itself, but the uh, the kind of entry to the village of Meurbe de Breton, uh, where we watched the race go by, uh, and it was really, it's quite, quite striking because the, when, when we were on the first stage watching what I was talking about, you know, how incredible that experience was a couple of days ago on the Cycling Podcast, you, there were so many people that you couldn't really see around the bend to see them coming at you. You just kind of saw them going by you, but this time there was fewer people, and so we could see them really come and approach, and they were, the look of, looks of concentration on their faces are unbreakable. I mean, they truly have faces of, of, of grit and determination and focus. I mean, superhuman focus. And this is right into the ramp up of the climb, so the tension was at an all-time high. And even in the gruppetto, even as they came through, it was, it was focused. And so they come by so fast. It was, you know, when they go by, when you're not looking at their faces, when they're just, it's very hard to pick them out, but this time it was easy to pick them out. So, you know, you see Roglic, you see Wout, you know, and then as sort of the later entries came in, you could see, I saw Mark Hershey. I was looking for him because I was kind of concerned about him with his shoulder. And uh, there was the audio from UAE that was sent last night that said that he would be able to continue kind of uh, indefinitely, I guess. Um, it still gives you goosebumps, really. The Just the spectacle of it. You know, the horns and the helicopters and the motorcade all just coming at you at once. And, and you wait and you wait and the anticipation just builds and builds and builds until it finally rushes past you. And it's like this moment of both tension and release that's really cathartic. And at the same time, they disappear up the hill and you don't see where they go and you have to try and get something on your phone to figure out what's happening, but everyone's on their phone, so there's no signal. And so you're really kind of left in this uh, almost like anachronistic situation where this is must, what it must have been like to watch bike racing in, you know, the 19th century. It feels like communicating by telegraph. Uh, <laughs> quick step at front, stop. Ineos Grenadiers forming train, stop. <laughs> Just... Yeah, I mean, there's something old school about it that's... It's funny, actually, about following the Tour de France and in France, at least here, because in these first few stages, the, the press center and the 
finish are have been like you know four or seven kilometers away from each other so if you want to see the race you know you kind of have to get in a car and and drive and try and park and find some place and there's actually not a lot of watching of the tour de france that goes on you know these last few days it's kind of funny i see more of the tour de france at home in my kitchen watching and taking notes for derailleur than i do here at the tour de france because you know, everyone's working and you watch, you can see it on the screen in the press center, but you know, if you want to go out and watch the race, you kind of have to leave when it's like 30 kilometers to go, which 60 to 30 kilometers to go. So it's, uh, you miss a lot of like the key strategic parts of it in attempts to see the sort of visceral real thing. Uh, so sometimes it's kind of frustrating. You have no idea what's going on and, and you have to write about it and it's, it's kind of crazy, but I think it'll get better as time goes on. Uh, you never know. You know, it's funny, I don't actually know anything about wine, so I asked Francois for advice, uh, and he says, uh, this wine is better than this wine, and just uses words to describe, he's talking about, like, tannins and things like that, I'm like, okay. You know, I drink martinis, that's my specialty, and I guess that's not a, really a French thing, but we'll see. The food has been great, excellent. You know, the bu- they have a really nice buffet at the Tour de France for the press. Uh, you know, they talk about it at, uh, in the cycling podcast, but really surprised. You know, it's funny coming from the arts, we don't get nice buffets at press for things like biennials, triennials, things like that. <laughs> it's like, go find your own food, you know? Yeah. Things are a lot more relaxed. I think this year because there's less Corona stuff going on and the energy is back. Definitely. Uh, people at the side of the road. I mean, for better or for worse, as we saw on stage one. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's an unbelievable experience. And, and, you know, talking to writers in the mix zone is really quite, it's so funny, you know, sometimes you get these moments of awe that are, it's like, I'm at the Tour de France, you know, I'm doing this, I'm, you know, a correspondent, I'm living my dream, my girlish dream. And, and then sometimes, you know, for, for example, I get into the mix zone and I put my press vest on. And I, you know, they're like, you know, I text a guy and I'm like, bring me Wilco Kelderman. And he comes and he brings me Wilco Kelderman. And it's like, hi, oh, Wilco, how are you doing? You know, <laughs> he's like, ah, I'm good. You know, it's a hard stage yesterday, but uh, today we do better. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's just like being on TV. It's so, it's like an out of body experience. But, you know, I thought I would be really nervous talking to them, uh, the writers. But actually, the more I do it, the more comfortable I become. And it's. It's really not so bad. I, I actually like them all quite a bit, even the ones people don't really like. Uh, or, like, people in the press, I guess, don't really like to talk to. I actually think that, you know, with the right approach, they all had something to say. And I, I kind of think they're all lovely people. I don't know. Very Even when they're not engaging, it's still just kind of nice to be sort of in their presence and kind of get it, you know, be so close to have such access. You know, these are people I've written about, like, you know, really effusive words. You know, not really, I mean, I've kind of felt starstruck a little bit, you know, at the very beginning, you know, when I first got there, when I first saw them for the first time. And now it becomes increasingly normal. It becomes increasingly like work, like just it's just writing. It's just journalism. It's just a job. But I definitely feel this immense sense of of privilege and uh, it's just really lovely to be able to have access like this. I mean, I really want to do this for the rest of my life. I mean, even if it's just day three and everyone says you're going to be so tired by the end of it. But, you know, I've got a lot of stamina, too. <laughs> I feel like I've been on the grand tour of life. 
So, we'll see. We'll see. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. With diabetes, it's a very much information-led and information-fueled area for me. You know, it, it, it's something where you dealt all this literature, all this times to the hospital you're discussing how your body's changing how you need to fuel how you need to then adapt to that situation i'm sam brand i'm a professional cyclist with type 1 diabetes and this process is really something that you learn you know it doesn't come overnight there's no silver bullet and i had to learn a lot of different things growing up in terms of carbs and um, and food and nutrition and how my body's going to react to that because i don't have that system that everybody else without diabetes has and I'm still learning now you know it took 20 years to get to the point where your body's still adapting every day no two days are the same and I think that's where there's sometimes a bit of frustration with people with diabetes but as a professional cyclist uh, living with type 1 diabetes we're here to show what's possible with diabetes and it's an absolute pleasure to be able to pass on that effect to other people to be a spearhead in changing diabetes I hope that People see what we do and it empowers them to do what they want to do. Let me tell you something about me. I drink packing for an international trip like a competitive sport. This originates in the first time I went to Europe when I was an undergrad as a music student barely 20, and decided, being American and rosy-eyed, to bring two very puffy gowns I'd purchased at a thrift store stuffed in a vacuum-sealed bag, so that I could wear one to the Music Verein in Vienna and one to the Vienna State Opera. We got to the Music Verein not more than an hour after our flight landed, and the experience of that gilded shoebox hall with its gold-leaf caryatids and its wooden panels painted to look like marble, as lush and as warm as any place could possibly be is what persuaded me to go into acoustics or graduate school, something which was years ahead of me, something I did not anticipate at the time. At that time, I was tired, and in a 10-year-old ball gown I bought for $5, the Vienna Philharmonic was playing Bruckner's Fifth Symphony, which is truly dull, and in its academic verbiage under the warmth of chandeliers, I fell asleep. It was the most beautiful place I'd ever slept in. In graduate school, we had to travel to Europe each year to study different concert halls. During that time, we flew WOW Air, which is now defunct. WOW Air was notorious for its draconian baggage policy, where a carry-on was free. The carry-on was of a very specific size, namely tiny, and a checked bag cost an absurd amount of money. Every year, I would astound my colleagues, because I was broke, by fitting everything I needed into the carry-on by using something I called the system. The system involves packing cubes and a lot of practice and patience. If you are a person who wears dresses, the system is very easy for you. You can roll up approximately 10 dresses into one large packing cube. 
That's quite a few outfits in such a small amount of space. However, packing for 10 days in Europe is quite different than packing for a month in Europe. I was going to the Tour de France, and I didn't even know what to wear. I've never been to a bike race before. Being American and from the South, competitive cycling is simply not a thing there. Lance Armstrong being the one exception, but we don't like to talk about him. Most of America's cyclists come primarily from the western part of the country, the part with a lot of mountains, and it's a big country. The Tour of California happens some 3,000 miles away from where I grew up. Utah, Colorado, all very far away. Still in art school, we would watch the Tour de France because watching the Tour de France, along with the FIFA World Cup, was considered a thing culture people did. And we all very much wanted to be culture people. This was during the Froome Dynasty, and at the time, all we could get with no cable was highlights on the internet. Everyone pretended to know what was going on. Chris Froome made it very easy to pretend to know what was going on, because all you needed to know at that time was Chris Froome. I had a boyfriend in college who was more serious about watching cycling, and I learned from him terms like Peloton and Flamme Rouge and Une Chasse Patate, terms I forgot when we broke up, but sounded familiar when I got back into cycling after meeting my husband. My husband is a touring cyclist who used to race, and his parents are touring cyclists who once biked across America. And when we were about to move to, from Baltimore to Chicago, they had some triathlete friends who were downsizing and gave them some bikes, which they then gave to us. One of these bikes was a Cervelo Time trial bike, a P3 model dating around 2003. This bike fit me, and I was taken with it. It looks fast standing still. It was an object of desire, an object of speed, which I was and am still not worthy of. I never had a nice bike before. I didn't even learn how to ride a bike until I was a teenager because in Southern Pines, the once rural town I grew up in, there was no reason to. In college, I'd had a series of $100 Craigslist bikes, each of which got stolen. Anyway... After rousing after eating Maryland crab and drinking Maryland beer, we all decided in the 90-degree weather with 90% humidity to ride our new bikes. I went to two blocks, didn't know how to shift because the shifters were in the aero bars, died going up a hill, pedaled two blocks back in shame, sat on the porch stoop, and threw up. With my head between my knees, I told myself, I have to get good at cycling. I am going to be good at cycling. In Chicago... There was actual cycling infrastructure, and one of the first things me and my husband did after we moved was ride bikes, mostly because we didn't have our stuff yet, and so riding bikes was one of the only things we could do. I ended up buying a beater bike, a 20-year-old Bianchi Volpe, in order to get groceries with panniers because I don't drive. I always wanted a Bianchi because the red Bianchi fixed gear my roommate in grad school had was the first bike I'd ever seen that made me go, damn, that is a sick bike. Anyway, me and Steven, my husband, would start out with 4 miles, then 8, then 20, then 35, then eventually 60, which is about 100 kilometers. Being a writer and architecture critic for the last 5 years, my body was simply a vat for my brain until I started cycling. Cycling made me realize that my body could be useful for things, that I could be valued for something other than its attractiveness to other people. I could be strong instead of beautiful, which was liberating. It was during this period that I decided to watch the Tour de France again. Why? Because I was cycling 200 kilometers a week, and it was a pandemic, and work had slowed, and for the first time in my life, I had the spare time to watch five-hour bike races. 
Cycling is a writer's sport. It unfurls within a number of different narrative scales, from a single climb to a three-week grand tour. It's a story of man versus self versus man versus nature versus machine versus society. Every literary trope, every type of character can be found in cycling. And it's underdogs, it's hard men, it's heroes, it's villains, it's tragic figures, it's noble and valiant laborers whose efforts make the whole thing come together. As an architecture person, half of cycling is architecture and landscape and urbanism. Very easy to write about. The transition was natural. I published my first essay, a piece about why Primus Roglic's Tour de France loss felt so devastating, on Medium in September of 2020. It got picked up by Bicycling Magazine, which ran it there online. I wrote more for them, including covering the first ever UCI World Esports Championships. I published a seven-part series on the 2020 World Championship Men's Road Race on Medium. And then started my newsletter, Derailer, in January of 2021 in order to do similar long-form narrative analysis of bike racing. In February, Bicycling assigned me to profile Roglic a piece which took me five months and marked my proper transition from a fan of the sport to someone who writes about it for a living, which I now do almost entirely full-time. This is kind of a wild story, I realize, now that I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Brest preparing to cover the Tour de France as a correspondent for Pro Cycling Magazine. But it's a true story nonetheless. Anyways, back to packing. I didn't know what one wore to a bike race as a journalist. In architecture, journalists are expected to dress like architects, wearing, like, black smocks and chunky shoes and generally expensive clothes from places like Everlane and Eileen Fisher. When I found out I could wear Doc Martens and t-shirts in the mix zone, I'll tell you, I felt rather liberated. I packed meticulously, about as meticulously as one could. However, I had made a mistake. I didn't bring a suitcase because I thought it would clutter up the car I'm supposed to be sharing with either the folks at the Cycling Podcast or Cycling Weekly, depending on the day, so I brought a duffel bag instead. That duffel bag is heavy as hell, and I have to carry it on my back in addition to the backpack I brought my laptop in. I learned this by walking the mile from the breast train station to my Airbnb yesterday. At first, I didn't know I was going to be a correspondent for the Tour de France. I would find that out a week before I left. I was originally supposed to be covering the Canadian GP races in Montreal and Quebec City for pro cycling, but those got cancelled. I had applied for the press pass for the tour on Impulse for my own newsletter, with little hope of success. I mentioned this to my editor, Ed Pickering, at Pro Cycling after he asked me if there were any other races I wanted to cover. Thus, a conversation was born. Ed needed someone to cover the Tour de France, because most of his team was stuck in Britain. And I wanted to very quickly and very unexpectedly make what had become my one dream in life come true. I booked a month in France in the span of four hours, cleared my savings to do so. I had no time to learn any French. I had no time to prepare other than packing, which I did with great gusto. And then I waited. Thankfully, it was a short wait. I got to the airport five hours early because God forbid I had to take another COVID test or something like that. There's a surprisingly large number of people traveling during a pandemic. I'm the first in line to check my bags, and thank God, they all took my COVID stuff no problem. It was really stressful. I got two tests in the days before, a PCR and an antigen test, just to be safe, each of them requiring an hour train ride both ways, neither of which were covered by my health insurance. Anyways, redundancy is key. As soon as I made it through security, I went to the bar because I hate flying and beer makes it easier. 
at the bar, images from the tornado that had ripped through the Chicago suburbs the night before, during which I'd gotten into the basement with my husband and dog, flashed on the television screens. It was one of those moments where you're like, life is truly, truly insane sometimes. It's like, ah, you go to the Tour de France nine months after you start writing about cycling. Why don't we throw a tornado in there the night before, you know, just to make it interesting. Okay. The writers would laugh, saying that's a little too on the nose. Anyways, I'd watched a lot of seasons of air disasters, which taught me probably too much about planes. This was how I found out that we'd be flying on a 737 MAX 8, the type of plane that crashed and was grounded in 2018, 2019. Can't remember. Q anxiety. I made some tweets saying stuff like, lol, hope I don't die. But my anxiety was mitigated somewhat by the fact that the stewardess gave me an entire row to myself in the emergency exit aisle. Once we reached altitude, I stretched myself across all three seats like a sofa and tried to sleep, seceding occasionally, but it couldn't have been more than two hours. I tried to trick myself into thinking it was four. In Reykjavik, the layover is short, but the flight's been delayed because of a mechanical issue. This flight is also on a 737 MAX 8, so let me tell you, I white-knuckled the entire thing and was so happy when we touched down in Paris, exhausted tears were beating in my eyes. Then there was a cab in which I fell asleep. When I woke up, I was on the Champs-Élysées, the Eiffel Tower in the distance, and despite this dreary, rainy day, a certain euphoria filled me, a traveler's euphoria, the euphoria of arrival, I guess. But I wasn't done traveling yet. <laughs> oh no. I sat in the Montparnasse train station for two hours on my duffel bag, which makes a pretty cozy seat despite all of its flaws. Don't ask me what transpired during those two hours, because in my exhaustion, I don't remember anything except trying to cram my bags through the turnstile at the one euro bathroom. On the train, I slept for an hour out of four and thought of interview questions for the other three, considering press week was coming up. This was a rather unsuccessful exercise, considering how tired I was. The landscape on the way to Brest blurred. It blurred by, and with it, I felt as though I was in a peloton of my own, traveling impossibly fast, with no time to take anything in, just passing by on the fumes of one and momentum. When I got to Brest Station, a bike exchange team car was parked outside waiting. That's when it hit me. That's when it all hit me. What it is I was embarking upon. And after that, I couldn't stop smiling like an idiot. On my way to my Airbnb, I passed the Bahrain Victoria's team bus in the plaza where the Grand Depart would take place. I was here. I was at the Tour de France. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that night, my Roglic profile, the combination of five months of really emotionally draining work, went live. And all I could think as I willed myself to sleep was that my life could not possibly get any better. That I was so blessed to have lived every single day of it. For that, I have so many people to thank. Editors, friends, colleagues, because in the end, nobody travels alone. Hey, this is Kate from uh, Tour de France Stage 3. I just wanted to record some thoughts before they get completely lost. Uh, look, it was a really brutal stage. A lot of people texted me to ask if I was alright because uh, Roglic crashed and, you know, spent all this time working with him and 
writing about him and thinking about him and talking to him this morning, which I guess I should talk about. That was supposed to be a happy story, and now it's not really. I guess I I was telling Richard in the car, I mean, it's just everything about being here in real life is so much more visceral than being on TV. That means the good things, but it also means the bad things too, like the good things being the speed of the race, the cadence of it, the beauty of cycling and all of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the speed of it. It's just incredible and and really just beautiful. But, you know, so too are the really hard bits where you see, you know, being in the mix zone at the finish and you see the guys roll in from from the finish and you see them and they're just... They're bloodied and bruised, and they have like a thousand-yard stare on their face, and it's like they've been through war. And you ask yourself, like, how can they do this, like, over and over and over again? It must be some kind of deep libidinal drive or something, because I mean, Jesus, I don't know. I'm rambling here, but it's really hard to look at. I mean, seeing Roglic come in just like completely bloodied after talking to him this morning, and he was just he was in such a good mood. You know, we were laughing, we we're having a nice chat, and you know, reunited at last, I guess. And he looked like a broken man at the finish line. And it took pretty much like every ounce of... took a lot not to cry. Um, Because you're just not used to seeing that kind of violence on the body uh, in real life. Especially, you know, we all try to be objective journalists. We all try to be good at our jobs and not get too attached but when you spend you know five months writing about somebody and you spend this time talking to them and having like what could be considered like intimate conversations you know and you see them in the flesh for like the real time and for for the first time and then they come to the finish line just like completely broken it's like I mean that's just a testament I guess to how green I am um it's my first bike race. It's the first time doing anything. You know, you know, Richard and Francois, they've been doing this for decades now. And, you know, for them, it's different. But for me, it's all very new. And, you know, maybe I made the mistake of feeling too much, which I think is a very human thing to do. Um, you know, and it's not just... It's just, I mean, it's a cruel and brutal sport, uh, and it's not, you know, it's not just Roglic. I mean, Jack Haig today was doing so well. And, you know, Peter Sagan and Caleb Ewan at the end, just like, oh, just gnarly and brutal and terrible. And it's just so visceral, live to see it. I mean, I couldn't imagine being on the last five, sitting, sitting there in the barriers in the last 500 meters and watching and ha- watching Caleb and Sagan go down. I don't know if I, I can't imagine, but there's like a trauma to it. I mean, it's kind of traumatizing and you can see the trauma in their eyes when they roll in. Even the guys who didn't get involved, like you can see, like I watched Wilco Kelderman right in and I've talked to him a couple times already and he had like a, he looked like he, like years had been taken off of him. I mean, it's just, sometimes you're like, I know this is sport, this is life and you know, you have to, toughen up you have to get on with it you can't sit here in your hotel room and be upset about it but I think it's just because it's the first time and you know it's one thing to watch them like when like you know we saw that they wrecked on the first stage and I watched them come in on the first stage 
uh, not to the finish, but like up to the final climb, but watching them roll in and roll to a stop and like knowing that their race is over. I mean, it's soul crushing. I mean, it's, it's hard not to be moved by that in some way, having never seen it before. And, you know, as the time went on, you know, as I watched, as I got into the paddock, not the paddock, the mix zone and, you know, held my little recorder out or whatever, then your little journalist heart starts to harden and you're like, this is work. You have to do work. People can't see you cry. You know, big boys don't cry. And if they don't cry, you don't cry. So not pleasant. But I think I'm recording this because I think it's good. And to be honest about how we feel, how we view things, this is about sort of like... Everyone wants my raw, visceral reaction to being here for the first time. And this this is what I feel. I mean, I'm sitting here walking around in my hotel room trying not to, you know, lose it. But, yeah, you can only see so much suffering as someone who, you know, hasn't seen it in the flesh, I guess. Literally in the flesh. <laughs> lots of flesh, lots of bleeding, gnarly flesh. And I think it's just like anything else. It's something you just get acclimated to, and it's something that you, uh, that as time goes on gets easier. But I think it's like that for them too, for the writers, you know, that bet the first crash is always the hardest. Unless one's really bad, but I think as time goes on, you just get hardened. You get tough. You grow up. And I think it's like that for us too, for the writers, for the people who have to chronicle these things which are sometimes so unexpected and so chaotic and so uh yeah brutal I mean but you still you have a deadline you still have to write you still have to do your job and they they go on day after day they go on and there's something in that you know there's something in that to go on to persevere when everything is terrible and you know if I if I was them if I was any of them, even I was like in the Gruppetto, I'd be like, I can't, I can't, but that's why I'm not them. I mean, and I think that's what we look to sport for is the encouragement to keep going even when things are bleak, even when things feel really dangerous and scary and terrible. I mean, it's like that in the world right now. I mean, we are undergoing a time in the world where it's a little bit difficult to be alive. I mean, the threat of existential climate change being one of many things that loom on the horizon, not to mention all of the various inequalities and and uh, awful things that happen. But at the same time you live, you keep living, and you have to go on. You have to persevere. And I think that's what's so, you know, it's so painful to see it in real life, but it's also what's so beautiful about cycling is that is this sheer act of self-discipline and perseverance in the face of all kinds of hardship and you the mental stress of it I can't even imagine it almost makes you know our own problems look so small in comparison but at the same time their their struggle gives us strength in ours and I keep that in mind now as I sit here and conclude my diary here for the night all right that's it bye-bye